Welcome to the Mindful Runner Podcast, a show about running and racing, trail and ultra in South Africa. Along the way, we'll be talking training, gear, nutrition, and mindfulness, all in the context of the South African racing scene. I'm your host, Fred Richardson, founder and head coach at Mindful Runner. Stay tuned as I do my best to give you all the information and none of the waffle. This episode, I'm joined by Andrew Porter, uh, absolutely no stranger to the route. Andrew has done the route numerous times in both directions. He has studied the FKT, he's studied the Heiberg probably more than anybody else on the planet. And so today, we're going to get Andrew telling us the best approach and how he approached running the DGT. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Your, your FKT is actually from the south to the north, uh, 45 hours, right? It is, yeah. Okay, so why do you go that way as opposed to the traditional route? There were lots of reasons. Part of it was based on where do I want to be when it's dark. Going solo, I was particularly interested in trying to avoid the Jarateng Valley and the dogs in it at night. Um, I had a pretty scary experience on one of my previous attempts. Another major, major factor that came into it is I live in Gauteng, and as a result, I know the northern Berg a lot better than the southern Berg. So it made a lot of sense to do the southern Berg, which I don't know so well, um, i.e. I've only done those stretches about two or three times, while I was still fresh and had a good mindset going. And then around about halfway when you hit Mufadi, I then moved into territory that I've done about 10 times. To do territory that you've done 10 times when you're completely buggered is actually nice and simple. You know, you can go, oh, I've done this before and just go for it. So I had less reason to pull out, less reason to get scared, less reason to be nervous. The stuff that came at the end, I knew so well. It was literally my back guard. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So you've mentioned that you've been on that that uh, northern section a lot. How many times have you made? Have you attempted the full route? The full route by now is probably at about ten times. It took me four goes at the standard speed traverse north to south before I eventually pulled it on my fifth one. Uh, subsequent to that, I've hiked the route over. I think it was twelve days. I've done two traverses at, in five days, um, according to the speed rules. I've lugged a bicycle up the chain ladder and got it as far as Mbunjuan Cave and then eventually realized that's not going to work the whole way, so I held into Mokunlong and went up the tar road into Sani Pass. So I've tried all sorts of things. I've even attempted a traverse from what was I was planning to get from Golden Gate all the way down to Tiffendale. Wow. I admit I bailed basically at the end of day one because I had two, um, a sleeping bag wasn't warm enough and I was never going to survive three weeks out there with the little thing I did have. So I've tried all sorts of things by now. One thing I know about you is you're pretty famous for not having a plan B. I'm not afraid of backing out, if that's what you mean. Yeah, so you, you'll commit, and if things are not flowing smoothly, then 
you'll bail. It's not a it's not a big deal. It's just you just chalk it up to experience. Yes. I think some of that comes from my climbing background. Just about any climber who's done a really hard climb will have tried it, you know, easily 30 or 40 times. Yeah. So for me to say I tried only five times for a GT makes it actually sound relatively easy in comparison. Yes, it does. The bicycle attempt, that interests me because I have had similar thoughts, like trying to use a fat bike. Why did the bike thing fail? Like, so I, that was the first time I tried using a bike in, literally touched my bike in something like five years. I'm a runner, not a um, Hit any kind of technical terrain, I was forced to push the bike. So basically when I was in the valleys on the paths, I could cruise along at a merry pace. I basically covered 80% of the distance in 10% of the time. But the remainder of the time you're pushing and pulling. It would take me literally an hour and a half to push my bike up and over the ridge. Then I'd cycle for 10 minutes in the flat of the valley, the next valley, and then I'd have to spend another hour and a half over the next ridge. So the sort of efforts of pushing versus cycling was just really not fun. That's actually why I pulled out in the end. Yeah, and it's got to be fun, otherwise there's just no point in doing it, is there? Yes. Talk me through when you did set the record. Tell me the story of that. I'll be honest, since I actually went just about entirely to plan, set off from Bushman's Neck at three in the morning, which basically got me up onto the escarpment as it got dark, or sorry, as it got light. I then used daylight hours to their maximum benefit to get my way over the Sani Flats, over to Barna and Kenyana and through the Mokotlong Valley. It was winter at the time, so by the time I had giants at about it was about five, half past five, it was already getting dark. I then sort of stopped for a few minutes near the top of Giants Pass, changed into some nice warm clothes that I could then keep going through the night. And summited Giants, and then I did something that I don't think anyone else has ever done on a speed GT before. Instead of doing the Jarateng Valley, I followed the escarpment edge. I think it's a K shorter, but it's got a lot. It's about 800 meters extra vertical gain and loss as you grind your way up and over a few extra ridges. Durnford Ridge, Bannerman. I just kept going at a steady pace. I didn't try and run through the night. I walked the whole way. And round about the Yodlers Ridge, it got light. And then I could start running again. So as I was approaching Cleft Peak, I remember looking at my time and thinking, well, if I can get from Cleft Peak to the finish in the same time that I normally do when I'm running from north to south at the start of the event, then I actually could maybe break Ryan and Reno's record. So I pushed a bit hard then, kept up the momentum for about one ridge. And then on the second ridge, I blew it a bit, actually got lost. So there I decided, you know, actually, let's just rather settle for the initial plan I'd always had of about 45 hours and at least get a really good solid time. You know, I realized it was going to need a lot more effort to try and break the 42 than I had available at the time. Yeah. Eventually finished just after, but 45 hours. Wow. So as you say, it just went to plan. Not after, after that that happens, is it? It's not, no. But I had spent... 
well over a year coming up with strategies and planning things and rehearsing the routes and stuff. So I did actually have a pretty good idea of what I was getting into. And did you find that you, you make up these, these many solutions to potential problems so that when they happen, you don't have to think too hard. You just go, okay, that's what my plan is, and, and you execute accordingly. Or do you try and solve the problems as they come up? I certainly try and preempt some of them. You know, like if I'm, especially if I'm running a race, for instance, if I come up with a strategy, I will always come up, ask myself the question of, well, what do I expect other people to do? So you have to actually anticipate that before the event starts. The GT like this, where you don't have other people around, your main, the main thing you're fighting against is yourself. So the heart of my strategy was based on where do I want to be when it gets dark? And hence, if I go at the pace I'm expecting to, what time must I start? And once it gets light again, have I then got enough time to get through to the finish, you know, in a sensible time kind of thing. In between all of that, they're trying to worry about um, the weather and where to get water and all that as well. Will your route choices vary depending on whether it's day or night or whether you anticipate being there in the day or not? They would, yes. Um, So if I was to have a go at it again, this time trying to actually break 42 hours, I might start an hour earlier because, and if I run hard, that would allow me to get through the Jarateng while it's still light. And then I just have to hang on through the rest of it and should actually finish in under 42. Because the Jarateng is a lot faster than that escarpentry. Even though, as you said, that escarpentry is only maybe another 400 meters, but that's significant when you're having to go up and down. There's like four big ridges in between. It is, yes. So I certainly reckon it's, you know, killed an hour to two hours of my time yeah. by itself. Tell me, what gear do you carry? On that occasion, at least, carried over half of my pack was food. I basically had a energy bar or equivalent, you know, so a packet of chips or some salami sticks or something like that, or goo sachets. Um, I basically had one of those items every hour on the hour. Uh, so I didn't have any proper substance, but I just had a lot of sort of snacky kind of stuff that I could eat as I was going. I then had several warm layers or sort of thermal vest type clothing. I think I had three or four of those layers, one apple jacket type of raincoat. So it didn't even have a hoodie. It was really designed more as a bit of a windbreaker than anything else. Then obviously a headlamp, GPS, bare batteries for both. Um, I had a, that occasion I had a yellow brick satellite tracker. It was before the days of spots and in reach. So I had a slightly heavier one. I can't remember if I had a cell phone or not. I probably did because if you need to bail somewhere, then the ability to actually phone someone or even just send an SMS is quite critical to how you get home. Yeah. I had a first aid kit that basically consisted of a roll of um, surgical tape. That was it. I owned a sort of 500 more water bottle. I find that at the pace I'm going, I can get between river crossings with with that alone. Okay, and that's even in winter when it's dry, you you reckon you can get to enough water sources? Yes. 
So remember, it's cooler, so you're sweating less. And I do sometimes have to go into what one, what stain is called camel mode between some of the, along some of the big ridges. I'm lucky that I can, if I'm fresh at least, I can run for about two to two and a half hours, just about any temperature before needing to actually collect water the first time. I know I've got a long haul ahead of drink well in advance, set off with my 500 moles finish it along the way, and then just hang out until I get to the next water. Yeah, that camel mode can be really useful. It allows you a bit less water, yes. <laughs> You've done almost all of your attempts solo. You've had a couple with, with others, right? But do you think that solo is more difficult, or are there advantages to going solo? I suppose I'll start with the advantage. It's probably easier to get one person at the peak of their fitness lined up with good weather breaks, gaps between work and so on, is you actually do want some time off work to be able to acclimatize. So it's probably easier to get one person at the peak of their fitness in the right conditions at the right time than trying to have two people simultaneously at the peak of their fitness. So I personally suspect that one day a solo person will actually break the overall record and will probably then retain it. It is, however, more difficult. There's a lot more commitment to it. In the back of your mind, you know that if you have a partner with and something happens to you, the partner can actually just run for help. When you're by yourself, you're completely stuck. If satellite trackers do have their use in the world, it certainly lets family feel that you're safe and more in control. That's worth a lot in itself. But if you just take a simple example, you're running along in the dark, trip over a rock and hit your head on another rock. Under conditions like that, you might lose consciousness and you actually can't press that magic red button. And then it all comes down to how long are you unconscious and how cold did you get now that you're not moving as to what actually happens. It certainly is more dangerous. And that's before you get to things like tackling dogs by yourself potential threats from a more security point of view if someone tries to attack you or something which has never happened on a speed GT but has happened to hikers so you're always aware of it in the back of your mind it's fair to say you've got an enormous amount of experience up on that route what advice would you give to the guys are going to be coming in and running now they're, they're assuming they've never been up top how would you advise them to prepare for this it certainly helps a lot to know the route you at least want to get out there a couple of times, actually run on the route itself. It helps to run it in both directions. You'll be running one direction, pick up a path somewhere, and then when you're returning along the path, you can carry on the path further and potentially find a way of getting onto the path earlier than you had that first go. Also, of course, if you know the route, you don't have to spend so much physical time navigating really does help to come over a saddle on a ridge, look ahead and go, I'm aiming for that saddle there and just know exactly where to go rather than have to pull out a GPS and a map and line things up. You do just run faster when you're concentrating on where you're going and not looking at a GPS all the time. It's also a good chance to get a feeling of where the water is, what kind of weather conditions you can expect and hence what gear you want and how to use the gear that you do take. It's obviously to your advantage to use 
you know, the gear in an optimal fashion, change the bits so you can't go in a weather gap, as an FKT you obviously can. The one thing that I think has hit everyone is you go a lot slower in the dark than you expect. I think it's the combination of the altitude, the total time that you're out there, the weight of your pack because you're self-supported, the lack of paths. Once it gets dark, you really do go a lot slower than you would have expected. So if you can actually get one nighttime trip out there, you will actually see that firsthand and that can help plan things better. Have you got any tips for exactly that, for how to negotiate the terrain at night? Because even if you are in the valleys and it's flat, you could be off the goat track or the sheep track by a meter or two, and then you're scraping through knee-high bushes. One of the things I um, have done subsequently to this, because it was something I wanted from there, was I actually set up my tracks the map that I'm navigating on, G- on the GPS to actually have different symbols for a good path, a path that is hard to find, and no path. So I know when I look at the GPS screen, I shouldn't be looking for a path over here and then just blunder along. Or I'll see, wait a minute, there is a faint path. Look for it then at least you spend your time looking for the path when it is, but not wasting your time when it isn't there. I have actually personally used the maps that you created and, and posted on uh, Vertical Endeavors, and I thank you for those again and again. Pleasure. <laughs> extremely useful. Wow, I've used them so many times, it's unbelievable. Pacing yourself is quite difficult, right? Because the sense of scale is so much different. There's nothing to give you an idea of just how far across a valley you are. So have you got any ideas on how to pace yourself effectively? How do you do it? I think I've been lucky. I've never really put any conscious thought into pacing myself. I pretty well start at a pace that seems okay, hold that out for a while, and then eventually you slow down a bit. And maybe At night, you definitely slow down even more. And then I've always found that the next day, that sooner or later, something kicks up my ass and says, if you don't start running, you're going to be out here for another day. That's very good incentive to actually just run a bit now and get a move on. I've been surprised with what what my body can actually do. And I think part of it also is the inherent nature of the terrain is that you run a bit, you walk a bit, you run a bit, you walk a bit. So it's not like road running where you run and run and run and when you can't run anymore, you're really dead. Yeah, while you're walking, your running muscles are recovering. You do actually find that after a while of having been walking that you can start running again as long as the terrain is um, suitable. So it's more just a you're playing it by feel and you're running as much as you can, but still by feel. Most of the time, I don't even try running the hills. Certainly nothing steep. The downhills, you can almost always run. And the flats will depend on whether you're on a path or not and whether it's light or dark. And you've got to concentrate as well, right? Because now, I mean, 45 hours, that's 45 hours of concentration. The more time you spend doing this, the better you get at concentrating. Does that make sense? Mm, either that or you learn to just operate in a not with it kind of mode. Probably more actually 
what are the points. If I look at my GPS track, I can see there were quite a few silly mistakes in those last couple of hours. I finished at midnight, so the last six hours were in the dark. And there were several places where I look at it and go, did I really do that? And then the GPS track doesn't lie. So I clearly wasn't making the best decisions by then. But of course, that close to the finish, it's better to just push on steadily, make a few mistakes, than try and sleep enough to recover and then hope to catch that up later. Um, if I'd been out there for three days, then a bit of sleep would have certainly helped. That particular pace had made more sense to just keep going. Okay, so on, a, on an attempt like this where, you, where you're really trying to hit the record, you say you're not going to sleep, and on a slower attempt, you're definitely going to plan sleeping. It will, well, this one even I had allowed for a possibility of sleeping at the end of the first day. My thought was I'll find a, you know, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, I'll find somewhere nice and sunny, go to sleep, and very soon after that, the sun will disappear and I'll get cold and probably wake up. In the end, I didn't feel a need to sleep when the opportunity came, so I just passed it up. If I'm going to try and break 45, I would almost certainly do it without any sleep at all. But yeah, obviously, if you go beyond that, at some point, some sleep is going to become useful. So you've got to try and balance it out. You've also got to consider that if you want to really sleep nicely, you have to have a sleeping bag, which weighs a lot. Or you have to try and curl up under a bush, which generally means you're either going to do it when it's really, really cold or do it in the daytime when you still have some sun to keep you warm. Sleeping is actually, it's, it's not just a straightforward decision. And there are a few things to consider. The only difference between the FKT and the event is an aid station at 100 miles at Sony Top. Do you think that that's going to change people's strategies significantly? Will it change your strategy? I would probably carry slightly, slightly less emergency type gear because you know that if you really need it at that stop, then it is there. Although admittedly, at the kind of pace I would want to go, mind you, you guys have a 3 p.m. start, so I'd have to completely rerun the numbers. But you are that kind of distance, you, you might well be able to save on one layer of clothing or something, and which isn't much, but when you carry it up 10,000 vertical meters, it does add up quite a bit. So I don't see it as so much as something I plan to send there, to, but more just a, it's a sort of safety measure, a little bucket that you have that's available if poopoo really hits the fan. That, to me, is what offers the most. Just that little security blanket. Security blanket is a lovely word, yes. Would you hazard a guess as to the winning time for the race? Do you think, do you think anyone will get close to the record, any team? Look, it would obviously depend on who's running it. But let's say that you manage to actually pull everyone who's gotten a top 10 time thus far and that they're running at their best. Um, so they could at least equal the time they've already had. I would still reckon that they'd be a few hours, probably about three to five hours off the pace. 
because of the 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. starting time. So basically everyone runs for a bit and then goes straight into the night and slows down. You're then going to go through the next day, through the next night. And if you're really heroic, you will finish mid-morning. If you're less heroic, you'll finish before it gets dark. Everyone will be doing two full nights. You do go slower at night than the daytime, hence I expect a slower time. That all makes sense. Andrew, thank you very much. It's been it's been really useful. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Okay. Bye. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Mindful Runner, check us out at mindfulrunner.co.za on Instagram. You can find us at Mindful Runner. In the meantime, enjoy your running, happy trails, and don't forget to subscribe.